1957, French Algerian writer Albert Camus was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. He was 44 years old, the second youngest person to ever receive the award. Fifteen years earlier, during the height of World War II, Camus stunned the world with his essay The Myth of Sisyphus and the novel The Stranger, followed a few years later by the award-winning novel The Plague. My guest today is Robert Zaretsky, a professor at the University of Houston and a Camus scholar and the author of A Life Worth Living, Albert Camus and the Quest for Meaning. Camus' work is an exploration of this idea of finding meaning in life, even when it feels at times absurd, and how we should rebel from ideologies, how we can ultimately find meaning in our relationships with others and in our love of life. Zaretsky brings Camus' work to life, and he helps us understand the lessons we can take and apply to our own lives to live a more flourishing life. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Robert Zaretsky as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Robert Zaretsky. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Robert, welcome to The Good Life. Thank you, Sean. It's good to be here. Well, our topic today is the Nobel Prize winning author, Albert Camus, and your book, A Life Worth Living, Albert Camus and the Quest for Meaning. And it's just a fabulous book. It covers a lot of topics that we talk about on this podcast, especially getting into this idea of what makes a life worth living, what defines the good life. And before we get into a lot of those themes, I was hoping that you could help us for the benefit of those in my audience who may not be as familiar with Camus, if you could talk a little bit about who he was and why he's still relevant today. Very briefly, Albert Camus was a French-Algerian, and I emphasize the point that he was French-Algerian. He was a French citizen, but Camus was born in Algeria, which in 1913 the year of his birth, was part of France. It wasn't a French colony. In fact, it was actually incorporated into France itself. The one million or so colonists who lived in Algeria from the mid-19th to the mid-20th century were, in effect, French citizens. And the eight to nine million Arabs and Berbers who lived in Algeria were in fact not citizens. They were second class, well, inhabitants of the country. And this is important to keep in mind when we think about his career as a writer, as a thinker, as an activist. So he was born in French Algeria in 1913. And the following year, 1914, his father was killed in the Battle of the Marne at the opening of the First World War. His mother took both Albert Camus, then just one year old, and his brother Jean, and moved from where they had been living in a town called Mondovi. They moved into Algiers, into the apartment of Camus' grandmother. And that's where he remained until the age of 18 when he went to the University of Algiers. Now, there were a few things to keep in mind about his childhood, about his upbringing. Albert Camus' grandmother and mother were both illiterate. In addition, his mother was 
deaf and she was largely mute. She had a limited vocabulary of perhaps 400 words, not more than that. Living in the same apartment was Camus' uncle, who was also deaf and largely mute. Let me interrupt there, if I may, because you make it clear in your book that Camus' childhood, being raised by a deaf mother in a mostly illiterate household, that silence that sort of enveloped his childhood had a big impact on his writing and his thinking. Camus grew up in a world where books were by and large absent and where silence by and large was present. It was an austere world. It was an impoverished world. His mother was the principal person who brought a salary into the house and she was a cleaning woman. And so this was his childhood. This was his youth. And this is something he speaks about in ravishing detail in his last and unfinished novel, The First Man, a book that I urge your listeners to read. So Camus manages to get into the University of Algiers, which is a miracle in itself, given his childhood. And he becomes politically active in the French Communist Party. And he also joins the theater. He was an actor and a playwright. It's interesting that in very short order, he gets thrown out of the Communist Party because he's too much of a free thinker. He just doesn't want to get tied down by an ideology. I want to get to his experience during World War II, which really shaped his life. So what happened next for Camus after graduation? And so here we find Albert Camus in the mid-1930s. He's a 20-something. He's committed to theater. He's committed to engagement, political engagement, that leads him to his first real job, which is on a newspaper. And he began his career as this muckraking journalist who reported on the various ways in which Berbers and Arabs were being maltreated in Algiers and in the countryside and about how a republic, the French Republic, dedicated ostensibly to the ideals of justice and equality, in its practice, repeatedly ignored the application of these very same ideals to all of the people of Algeria. The newspaper became a thorn in the side of the French government in Algeria, and in late 1939, it was finally shut down. And Once it was shut down, for just the second or third time in his life, Camus left Algeria to go to France, to the mainland. And he had a job with another newspaper called Le Soir, the evening, waiting for him in Paris. And it was while he was in Paris, Sean, that what had been the phony war between France and Germany turned to a very real war in May of 1940 when the Germans invaded through northeastern France, the Ardennes Forest. And quite suddenly, from one day to the next, the French Republic is on its back foot, in retreat, unable to respond militarily to the German invasion. And this leads to something that the French call l'exode, the great exodus, where millions of Frenchmen and women poured onto French highways and roads and tried to make their way south in order to escape 
Camus at this time had already begun writing what will eventually become some of his most famous works. And yet here he was in Paris with the Germans bearing down on him. And you get the sense that this is where he started looking around and observing that life can get fairly absurd. Who in his day thought the French Republic was going to just dissolve in a matter of weeks? So what did Camus do? Albert Camus was part of the exodus. The newspaper publisher sent him to Lyon with official correspondence, with a couple of typewriters. But also, and this is extraordinarily important, he also had in the trunk of the car the manuscripts to the two books he was working on at the time, namely The Stranger and The Myth of Sisyphus. And he saw these two books as well as the third work, a play he was working on called Caligula, after the Roman emperor. He saw these three books tied to one another. What they had in common was the notion of the absurd or absurdity. Talk a little bit about how he would write three different works about a theme like absurdity, because he does this again later when he takes up other themes. Because I really found it interesting how he would try to get at the truth by coming at a subject from three different angles, a book, a play, and an essay. He wrote his works in cycles. This was his plan, his design, and he was a very systematic writer. Each of the cycles that he produced had three different works. They had a kind of tripod. One leg of the tripod was a novel, and so in the cycle of the absurd, the novel is the stranger. The second leg of the tripod is what he called the philosophical essay. And in the case of the cycle of the absurd, it's the myth of Sisyphus. And then the third leg is a play. In the case of this first cycle, it is Caligula. He had begun work on the book and on the essay, as well as on the play, before the declaration of war. Talk a little bit about what Camus meant when he writes about the absurdity of life and how to deal with that. The the very experience of Camus in the Great Exodus was a profoundly absurd experience. From one day to the next, the French, some 40 million or so men and women and children, believed that what had happened the day before, what had existed the day before, namely the laws and the precepts and the principles and the traditions and the values that defined the French Third Republic, all of that, which had been there the day before, would be there the day after. And then suddenly, with the Nazi invasion, that collapsed. Those expectations no longer held true. And there is this very telling line in the opening pages of the myth of Sisyphus, in which Camus is circling around his definition of absurdity. He says, at a certain moment, unexpectedly in your life, the stage set collapses. Now, of course, he's thinking like an actor, he's thinking like a director, but he's also looking for a metaphor to explain what had happened. How can we apply this to our experience as a nation? 
Exactly. And this gets to why I believe Camus is more relevant than ever. He wrote a book about the plague, and we are essentially experiencing a plague. And to your point, there's a feeling of absurdity at times. As I tape this podcast, my children are attending high school a few rooms over in my house, and I wasn't expecting that. The stage set collapsed in 1940. In effect, this is what's happened to us in this country with the pandemic. The stage set collapsed. And the fact that I teach my classes now either through Zoom or I teach them while wearing a mask to students who are spaced six to eight feet apart in a room that's on a campus that's now more or less deserted. Who would have thought? I never would have thought six months ago that this would ever happen in my life. And it has. And so his experience in the opening phases of that war underscored the thisness, if you will, of the absurd. What happens next for Camus? And so he continues to work on these manuscripts in the midst of the Exodus and in the midst of a life of exile. After a short spell in Lyon, the newspaper has to cut back on its staff and he's forced to return to Algeria. I should mention that while he was in Paris, he married a woman he had met about two years before in Algeria, a remarkable woman by the name of Francine Faure, who was a mathematician a math teacher, as well as an accomplished pianist. They married in Paris. Francine and Camus returned to Algeria. And suddenly, this 20-something, without a job, is teaching in Oran, Algeria's second largest city. And they're teaching in Oran because he can't afford to remain in Algiers. He doesn't have the money for rent. So he and his wife move into an apartment owned by his wife's parents. And he is teaching Jewish students in a private school because one of the first acts of the Vichy government, the authoritarian government that replaced the Republican government of France in the summer of 1940, one of their first acts was to issue a series of anti-Semitic laws. And one of those laws established a very limited quota on the number of Jewish students who were allowed to attend public schools. And so suddenly, France's Jewish population, French Jewry, was unable to provide educations for their children. And so Camus steps in as a tutor. And He sends his manuscripts to France's most prestigious publishing house called Gallimard. The editorial board is just blown away by these works. They are unlike anything else they had read. Just the nature of the writing of the stranger was so unlike what was traditional French literature in the 20th century. It was hard-bitten, it was sharp, it was severe. It read, in a way, like an American detective novel, which is not surprising because he was deeply influenced by American detective writers. That's interesting because detective novels are considered to be sort of trashy, and it's not the sort of literature that's 
typically recognized by the Nobel Prize Committee. So who was he influenced by? He was very much taken by John M. Cain, the author of, of course, The Postman Always Rings Twice. And there are extraordinary parallels, not just in terms of narrative technique, but also in terms of characterization between Cain's potboiler and The Stranger, one of the classics of the French literary canon in some way is due to Cain's work. And so their socks are knocked off by this novel as well as by the uh, myth of Sisyphus. They offer him a contract. They publish the books in mid-1942 to great critical acclaim. You have to keep in mind, though, that they're published in occupied France. And so the novel is published as it was written. But as for the myth of Sisyphus, Camus had to remove a chapter devoted to Franz Kafka. Why? Because Kafka was a German Czech Jew living in Prague. And under Vichy's laws, you simply couldn't do this kind of thing. Wasn't it around this time that his health started to fail? And I think this is important because his mortality started to weigh down on him. And that impacted his writing and how he thought about his life and finding meaning in his life. He had learned when he was 17 while playing soccer that he was tubercular. He was playing soccer and he began to cough up blood and he was diagnosed with tuberculosis. And it was something that he lived with ever since the age of 17. The problem in 1942 is that the tuberculosis had spread to his little lung. And his doctor said, if you don't get yourself to the appropriate climate, you're going to die. And so he and Francine took a boat back across the Mediterranean to France. And they went to a small town where there was another family connection. They had a farmhouse there in the foothills of the Alps. And the farm where he went was just outside of Chambon. He made his home there. Francine, after a few weeks, returned to Oran because she was teaching. It was while he was in Chambon in November of 1942 that the Germans invaded what was then the unoccupied or the free zone of France. And when that invasion happens by the Germans, which was unopposed by the French military, of course, in his journal, Camus wrote that day, trapped like a rat. He could not go home to Algeria. And at roughly the same time, he wrote, absurdity teaches nothing. And it was shortly after those entries that Camus goes underground and joins the resistance. And he eventually becomes editor of perhaps the most important, the most influential resistance newspaper by the name of Combat, which was also the name of the resistance movement for which the journal was its voice piece. And this is the Camus that many of us know today, basically the poster child for the French resistance because he's so photogenic and he writes so well and he's so unlike so many other products of the French literary world who went to the elite schools and were... Parisian through and through. Camus was just completely different. 
and so attractive for that reason. And for the next year and a half, we find Camus in the resistance, writing editorials, making a name for himself, making a name for the resistance to the world beyond France, and most importantly, making a name for existentialism. So in 1944, with the liberation of France, and Albert Camus appears as this dapper, as this dashing representative of the resistance and of this new school of thought called existentialism. That was a tour de force there of Camus' life up through the end of World War II. What I'd like to do is go into some of these themes, because in the book, you explore certain intellectual and moral themes that Camus writes about and that you find that you believe to be kind of essential to defining a life worth living. And one of those we sort of hit on, which is the absurd. In the triad or the three works that he explores, the absurd, one of those is the myth of Sisyphus. And maybe we could go into that. One thing I really enjoyed about Camus and the way that you explored his work is how he related to the ancient Greeks, he related to myth, and he explores absurdity through this famous myth that we have of Sisyphus. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that and also relate it to what we're going through now, the absurdity that we are sort of facing in our own lives with this COVID-19 and other things that we're dealing with. He makes the case in the myth of Sisyphus that absurdity is really something that happens when two other things merge. One of those things is humankind's desire for meaning. This is what's deepest and most fundamental to us, Camus believes. We demand purpose. We demand meaning. We must have a reason, something with which we can invest our lives. And we tend to look to the world or we tend to look to the skies to know what that meaning is. We tend to look to something transcendental, be it God, be it another deity, be it a platonic ideal, be it as it was for the communists history with a capital H, something that is far greater than us, that invests our lives with purpose or meaning. But the world, for Camus, lacks this transcendence. There are no transcendental foundations. There are no transcendental solutions to our quest for meaning. So the absurd for Camus is we keep demanding answers to our questions, not unlike Job. We want to know why things are the way they are. And as is the case for Job, until the voice from the whirlwind speaks, there's no reply. And it's that silence. More than once, Camus calls a tender but indifferent world. That's what generates absurdity. It's when our pursuit of meaning and the world's refusal to tell us what that meaning is, what results, what issues from that collision is absurdity. So as humans, we have this deep desire for meaning 
and purpose. And when we go searching for it, we find the world isn't just going to give us the answer. And that's something I can relate to. There's no easy answer to that question. We all have to answer it in our own way. I think that's one of the mysteries of life. But you might think that, oh, well, Camus must be a nihilist. He must be someone who says there is no meaning, but he wasn't. He, he wasn't a nihilist. And I, I want to get into that. And perhaps you can talk about the character of Sisyphus from the Greek mythology and how Camus brings that story in to sort of explain his view. He brings Sisyphus into the discussion of the absurd at the very end of this essay. It's titled The Myth of Sisyphus, but as you know, Sean, the story of Sisyphus, the myth, covers just the last four or five pages of the essay. Sisyphus is not mentioned until the very end of this work. And it's important to keep in mind that it is an essay because an essay is unlike a treatise, even though Camus at the University of Algiers did his bachelor's degree, the equivalent in philosophy. He wasn't a professional philosopher. He wasn't somebody who wrote his works on philosophy in an argumentative fashion. Instead, he wrote it in terms of imagery, as you pointed out. And he also wrote it as an essay. And think about the French word for essay, S-A-A. It means to try. I will try to do this. Writing a treatise where, if you're a Kantian, you know exactly where it is you're going to end up. You know the end even before you start out to get there. The essay, it's just the opposite, Sean. You will only know the end when you reach there. And once you reach there, the end is always provisional. It's never final. It's never definitive. There is no terminus when it comes to essay writing. I want to get to, in the myth of Sisyphus, the actual Greek myth, Sisyphus is condemned to rolling the stone up the hill, right? Again and again. It's a sentence that is imposed kind of the mindlessness of that activity is the real torture that Sisyphus has to undergo. And is Camus making the connection there between our continual search for meaning and in something external and not finding it again and again? Is that what he is saying? Is that the connection he's making with the myth of Sisyphus and this idea of meaning and the absurd? That's the beginning of it. I think it goes one or two steps beyond that. What attracts Camus to Sisyphus is first the fact that Sisyphus is a troublemaker. He keeps on tricking the gods. The reason why he keeps tricking the gods is because it's his time to die. And first with Persephone, then with Ares, who's sent to bring him back to Hades, he tricks them. And why does he trick them? Because he doesn't want to surrender his life. Because he understands, being an ancient Greek, that's all there is. And he loves life. He just loves the sun, the Mediterranean sun. He loves his wife. He loves the feel of the earth. And he doesn't want to give it up. He's not ready just yet. And so the gods, when they finally get him down to Hades, 
and they punish him. They believe what better punishment for this guy who repeatedly humiliated ourselves, who refused his summons when his time had come. And so he's sentenced, as you noted, to rolling up this boulder up the slope of a mountain and upon reaching the summit to see it roll back down and having to trudge behind it and then roll it back up again. Now, the meaning, I believe, for Camus in all of this and why the very last line is, we must imagine Sisyphus happy. Who could be happy doing this? And yet Camus Sisyphus is somebody who at the summit, as he watches the boulder begin to go back down the slope, in Camus' account, he pauses as he watches it go down. And that pause, I think, is all important because he's reflecting on what his punishment is and how can he trick the gods one more time. So he follows the boulder down, he shoulders it, and in shouldering it, he makes it his own. He basically invests himself in this punishment, depriving the gods of what they think they've done to him. In each and every trip he makes up that, takes up that mountainside, and in the pause as he watches it go back down, he thinks of ways in which it can vary, in ways in which he can leave his signature on that next trip. This, at least, is Camus' interpretation. He will not allow the gods to break his resistance. So he finds meaning in that punishment. Exactly. He embraces, if you will, the absurdity of the punishment and of his predicament. But once again, it's important to keep in mind that Camus does not stop here, that what we have with the myth of Sisyphus and of course with the stranger in Caligula is a diagnosis of the absurd, of our absurd condition. But by 1942, after he had already completed the myth of Sisyphus, Sean, and as he saw what was happening in France, he realized that it was no longer enough to simply rest with a diagnosis or to embrace the punishment. You had to do something more. You had to invest your person into a greater cause than you yourself. And that is the reason why he joins the resistance. And that's what leads him to his next cycle of works, what he called the cycle of rebellion or revolt. Let's transition to that. Let's talk about the cycle of rebellion or revolt. You make a distinction between revolt and revolution. Can you talk a little bit about that? Camus was as appalled by revolutionaries, his comrades in the French Communist Party, for example, as he was by reactionaries or counter-revolutionaries. For him, revolutionaries do the very same thing that reactionaries do, that they reduce humankind 
to stereotypes, to abstractions. They are incapable of seeing people as they are. He was once involved in this violent exchange of letters in newspapers with a communist after the Second World War. And the communist said, you don't know the first thing about Marxism. Okay. And Camus' reply was, I don't need to know anything about Marxism. I learned about misery in my life. What do you know? And so for him, what truly counted was the palpable, was the real, was the living, not the abstractions that these ideological streams employed, both one and the other, but instead the individuals towards whom their ideologies were ostensibly aimed, but in fact were utterly discounted by. He sees this in the 1930s. He sees it even more clearly in the 1940s with the creation of the Iron Curtain and with the way in which French communists were basically towing Moscow's line. He was horrified by this. He was a man of the left, but he didn't believe the communists represented the values of the left. He really wasn't a man of any party. And so revolution for him was something that we had to avoid at all costs. But it's not the same as revolt or rebellion. Rebellion for him is really moderation by another word. The true rebel, and this is something that he discusses at length in his essay, The Rebel, which was published in 1952. The rebel is somebody who always lives on the edge whose life is always one of great tension. For Camus, why does he become a rebel? On the one hand, he becomes a rebel because his dignity as a human being has been discounted, has been disparaged, has been damaged, has been threatened by another human being or another group of human beings. And at a certain point, you draw the line and you say, beyond that point, I must rebel. You cannot do that to a fellow human being. But at the very same time, the rebel in rebelling will not fall over into the camp of revolutionaries because the revolutionaries are doing the very same thing that his oppressor has done, making him less than human making him subhuman, inhuman, turning him into the other. One of the things I took away from this section was a bedrock value for Camus was that the ends don't justify the means and that the Communist Party or some of these other ideologies would use the same violence, would justify murder, would justify treating people horribly because they were on the way to some better end. And Camus wouldn't put up with that. He stuck to his principles. And you talk about this in the book with the idea of fidelity. He was true to these principles and ideals. And so I hear what you're saying with this. So the rebel is someone who would not go to that extreme. Even though they're drawing the line, they're still maintaining their humanistic principles and values. Is that right? 
Oh, that's very much right. But there's one other element, namely that there's something deeply tragic about rebellion, Sean, because the rebel simply cannot maintain that position between and betwixt these two opposing extremes forever. Sooner or later, the rebel will fall to one side or to the other. And that's why, if you've read The Plague, you have the conclusion that, that you have. The narrator, the hero of the story is this doctor, Dottachieu. And the very last paragraph after the plague finally leaves the city of Oran in this fictional account, and people are celebrating, people are once again embracing one another. It sounds a little bit like our situation today. What does the doctor tell himself? That the plague has not disappeared. It has subsided, but that sooner or later, it will once again appear. That once again, as Chia writes, the rats will appear because it was the appearance of rats at the very beginning of the novel. This was the herald. This was the first sign of the imminent arrival of the bubonic plague. What does the plague represent, do you believe? We have to keep in mind that the plague, he started writing it in the midst of the occupation of France by Nazi Germany. And it was published in 1947, just two years after the end of the Second World War and France's complete liberation. And first and foremost, what he had in mind was the German occupation, that he was, in a way, expressing his experience in the resistance through the characters that we find in the novel. It was a refraction of his underground experience, the plague. But of course, it wasn't just this. Camus said it's a parable, as well as a kind of historical account of France under the occupation. And the plague is not just something microbiological. It's also something ideological. And this became, not only was this all too apparent during the war, when France was subject to the totalitarian ideologies of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. But once again, after the war, Camus sees the rise of yet another totalitarian ideology, Stalin's Soviet Union and Stalinist communism. And so this resistance is not just to microbes. The resistance is to the the thoughtlessness that such ideologies require. That's one of the things that I really appreciate about Camus, that he cautions us not to get indoctrinated in an ideology, and the, the, that the meaning we seek in our lives stems from our individual quest and our individual liberty and our free thinking. And I believe he even cautions us that the threat of ideology doesn't always come externally. As one of the characters in the plague, Jean Tahrou mentions in a conversation with the doctor, Rieu, he says, my life has been spent aware that I carry the plague. We all do. And I have to remain ever vigilant not to spread it. 
by keeping my eyes on it. And this, I think, is perhaps the most important of lessons. And I hate drawing lessons from novels. That wasn't why they're written. But if you were to draw one lesson from the plague, especially for our time in this country, it would very much be that. That's a fascinating concept in that each of us has the potential for extremism or extreme ideology. And if we all acknowledge that and are ever vigilant, that is a way for us as a culture and society, a free society, to maintain our liberty and our freedoms. And I I think this goes to the heart of your show about the good life and how we can invest ourselves in the good life. One of the points that both the play as well as the rebel make is that the good life cannot be achieved in solitude and isolation. That the good life for Camus, for the characters in his novel, can only be found in collaboration when they join arms one with the other. In The Rebel, he makes this point by kind of tweaking the famous formula, I think, therefore I am. And for Camus, it really wasn't that important to affirm one's existence as an isolated mind, which is really what's happening with Descartes' great rationalist point. Instead, what's most important is to affirm our existence in the company of others. So rather than declaring, I think, therefore I am, Camus suggests, I resist, therefore we are. And that's something he always tried to practice in his life. Sometimes he succeeded, sometimes he failed. And what are we resisting in that? I love that formulation, by the way. I resist, therefore we are, which is I'm fighting for something. I'm fighting for meaning in my life. I'm fighting for justice. I'm fighting for love to win out over fear. Exactly. I think that last line is most important, Sean. I'm fighting on behalf of love. Just as he realized after the completion of his cycle of the absurd, that it was just the diagnosis. It was a description, but now we needed a kind of prescription, a kind of cure to our tragic condition. He wrote the cycle of rebellion. But after completing the cycle of rebellion in the early 1950s, he was still dissatisfied. Rebellion is extraordinarily important, agreed. But it's not just rebellion, as you just asked. It's rebellion on behalf of what, really? It's resistance on behalf of what? And so, towards the end of his life, he dies in a car accident in January of 1960. But about a year and a half, two years before the accident, he begins his third cycle, and he calls it the cycle of love. That's what we resist on behalf of, love. And in the 150 or so pages of The First Man, what we have are various takes on love, love of family, love of friends, love of nature, 
and really the care for oneself as well. It is an extraordinary work. And as I said, I can only repeat, it's heartbreaking. First, because it's so beautiful, Sean. And second, because it's unfinished. The novel is unfinished. The cycle is unfinished. And Camus' life was unfinished. Perhaps that's the greatest tragedy, that he didn't live long enough to tell us what he thought about love. What more did he have to say about it? And my goodness, that's something that we need to hear today, don't we? Absolutely. And I like how he came back around to the light, the love of nature, some of the joy in life that you described at the beginning of his life. Even though he grew up in a fairly stark environment, there was something about the Mediterranean beauty of his youth that he seemed to rekindle as he was writing this third trilogy on love and was reconnecting. There was a line you kept coming back to in the book about something about the light and the the Mediterranean light and the sun and how in the darkest times in his life, he would go to that or he would somehow realize that there is hope, there is beauty out there, and it would sort of save him. Absolutely. And he did believe there was beauty out there. And it was beauty that was distilled by nature. It was beauty that was distilled by family, by friends, by lovers. But I don't know if it also meant that there was hope out there. And we can't escape the tragic, ultimately the tragic understanding that he has of the human condition. That one of the lines that I like that Camus was fond of repeating was, there's no reason for hope, but that's no reason to despair. In other words, hope is illusory. And in fact, if we do believe hope exists, we might not, in fact, do very much to act in order to bring about whatever it is we hope for. What's truly important is that we are engaged with one another. It is the activity. It is the effort we make to remain connected with one another, to have a common goal, a humane goal, a just goal. One that recognizes not just the humanity of those who are voiceless, but also recognizes the humanity of those who not only have voices, but spend their time shouting (laughs) at others. We can never, ever overlook our common humanity. That's a wonderful way to end our discussion. Where can people find out more about your works and what you do? They can go to Amazon, though I would much rather have you go to an independent bookstore site. I go to Powell's Books, and I've written a great deal on Camus, and all they have to do is Google my name and Camus' name, and all sorts of links will come up. But rather than reading my words on Camus, they're not terribly important. What you should be reading is Camus' words. And so I think it would be terrific if your listeners were to go, not just to the stranger, not just to the myth of Sisyphus, but to the plague, which really does speak to our situation today, to our national predicament. And go to the first man as well, which truly is beautiful. 
And also, and it's just been published by Vintage. It's called Personal Writings, I believe. I just received a review copy, and it's edited by Alice Kaplan. And it's a collection of the essays that he wrote beginning in the mid-1930s when he was 20-something that are just extraordinarily lyrical, uh, buoyant, beautiful, sensual, not at all like the Camus that most of us think of today. So you might get a copy of the personal writings as well. All of those would be a great way to get oriented to Camus. And I also encourage our listeners to start that journey. He's a wonderful writer, and there's much we can learn from Camus. Robert Zaretsky, thank you for being on The Good Life. Sean, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.